So this is the second week that you're speaking, fourth week of the series on revival. So I'm, uh, I just want to pray with you. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the life of your spirit, for your purposes, for the power of your word. We ask that your word would have its full effect in us today and that Dan would see clearly and uh, that you would make your word penetrate our hearts deeply. Jesus, amen. Thank you. Amen. Thanks, Mark. Well, good morning. I feel like we've, uh, we've skipped a couple of seasons since last week. We're like sort of coming off 70 degree weather and all of a sudden it's like, all right, we're in Boston. Yep. Um, it's, it's really good to be here again and it's a real treat actually to, um, to get two weeks in a row um, to, to be able to share at the same church and to be sharing in the same series is actually it's a real gift because it just allows a bit of continuity and allows uh, a sort of a continuous sort of theme and train of thought to happen. So um, we have been for the last three weeks in a series called Revive, Revive, and um, the, the key theme or ver- Bible verse that has been threading all these together is from Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, and that reads, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn away from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. So the first week, we were looking at the concept of humility. And we've been looking at different kings uh, that are shown in the second book of Chronicles and looking at these kings as examples of these different attributes. If you notice in that verse uh, that, we just, that I just read right there, there are certain components that are needed for revival. Okay, Humility, prayer, seeking the face of the Lord, and turning away from your evil ways. So we've looked at humility under King Josiah. Uh, We've looked at seeking the Lord's face under King Asa. Last week I preached on prayer by looking at King Jehoshaphat. And so this is our final week of this series. Um, And I've actually, I've been really uh, praying that the Lord would really stir our hearts this morning um, because the the basic theme of today's message is is repentance. Repentance. such an important aspect in our walk with the Lord is this concept of, of repentance. Um, and so this is the turn from your wicked ways uh, part of the passage. And if you remember, if you were here last week, I said, okay, you've got about a week to think about your wicked ways. You can bring them back this week and um, we'll sort those out for you. So um, let's open our Bibles or uh, your smartphones. Remember, guys, it's way cooler than a smartphone Bible. And we're going to turn to Second Chronicles, chapter 30. And we're looking at verses 1 through 9. So that's Second Chronicles, chapter 30, verses 1 through 9. And so who we're looking at today is King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah, probably one of the most well-known kings in the Old Testament. And you'll be relieved to know that I, there's no Sean Connery in this one. I just, uh, I'm not hearing Sean Connery's voice pronouncing Hezekiah. Um, it's back to my usual uh, Morgan Freeman narration, so... All right, here we go. Now Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. For the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had decided to celebrate the Passover in the second month since they could not celebrate it at that time because the priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient numbers nor had the people been gathered to Jerusalem. Thus, the thing was right in the sight of the king and all the assembly. 
So they established a decree to circulate a proclamation throughout all Israel, from Beersheba even to Dan, that they should come to celebrate the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem. For they had not celebrated it in great numbers as it was prescribed. The couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with the letters from the hand of the king and his princes, even according to the command of the king, saying, O sons of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to those of you who escaped and are left from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord God of their fathers, so that he made them a horror as you see. Now do not stiffen your neck like your fathers, but yield to the Lord and enter his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God, that his burning anger may turn away from you. Now listen, this, this, key, this last uh, verse is really key. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive and will return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate and will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. We'll come back to that, but I want you to keep that on the back burner, this idea that if you turn to the Lord, he will not turn his face from you. Okay, so a bit like last week, um, we're going to do a little bit of a historical uh, review here to, put, to give you guys some context. Remember last week I was talking about context, context, context. It's so important when you're reading Scripture, all right, to know what's come before, know what's come after, so that you can place the passage you're reading in its proper context. Otherwise, it's very, very easy um, to draw things out of context and to misuse Scripture and to misunderstand it. So, we've skipped ahead about 140 years from last week. Okay, from Jehoshaphat's reign. Jehoshaphat was around 872 BC. Hezekiah, somewhere approximately around 729, 728 BC. Okay, and again, the reason I'm throwing those dates out there is not, again, to try and sound like a history buff, but it's to remind us that what we're reading here is real history. Okay, this, this stuff is real history. It's, it's many things, this book, but one thing it is, is a re- reliable source of history. Um, Small example of that, actually. Very, very cool. Uh, there's a breaking news article just came out, uh, I think last week or a week ago uh, or two. And um, I just, I love the way the Lord works because uh, this, this is a great article about, um, it's talking about ISIS. And you know how ISIS have, um, they captured a lot of land in the Middle East. And they've been, not only are they uh, brutalizing people, but they're brutalizing uh, archaeology and historical sites and trying to destroy them. They're trying to wipe out any, any kind of historical context that might threaten um, their idea of Islam. And so they, they have, ISIS have destroyed uh, the historical tomb of Jonah, the prophet Jonah. And, uh, and since then they've moved on. And recently archaeologists have found underneath the tomb of, jo- uh, tomb of Jonah um, the remains of the palace of King Sennacherib, who is actually uh, in Second Chronicles. He's a Syrian king. And so they, they revealed the foundations of this palace that was buried under Jonah's tomb. And it's just like, it's just awesome when you see things like that because it's a confirmation. Wow, this, you know, this stuff really happened. This, this is not myth. It really happened. Um, so this is a history book. It's as real as World War I, World War II. It's as real as the... Uh, American Revolution, 
particularly painful one for me. Uh, reality check there. But you know what? I figured at that stage, wasn't it really like the Brits fighting the Brits? I mean, you know, the, you know I'm sure they were sort of like, okay, guys, we need to come up with a way to distinguish ourselves from the Brits. And, you know, some soldier was like, well, what about if we start saying tomato? <laughs> Dumb. All right. Tomato, tomato. We've got it sorted. Anyway, history. <laughs> so much has happened since Jehoshaphat last, last, uh, last week. Um, the northern kingdom has fallen. And remember, we talked about the northern and the southern kingdoms. If, um, if you weren't here last week or uh, past weeks, go online, check out the sermons. We talk about the northern and southern kingdoms. Um, but basically, the northern kingdom, Israel, has fallen to the Assyrians. That happened around 722 B.C. And so now you've only got Judah, the kingdom of Judah, which is still free, but it's getting a lot, of, um, a lot of attention from the Assyrian Empire, which was the predominant empire at that time. So at this stage, both Israel and Judah have done evil in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, remember, uh, the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, had no good kings, didn't have any good kings, and Judah had a mix, some good kings and some not-so-good kings. So... Now Hezekiah has become king, and his father was Ahaz, and Ahaz has led Judah astray. Um, he's, he's led him into idolatrous worship, uh, worshiping all kinds of different gods. Um, he's brought divination, child sacrifice, um, and he's really brought Judah to a new low. This is under the, the rule of Ahaz. And this happened in 16 short years. Okay, it's really important to remember, 16, within 16 years... You can bring a nation to a completely different um, way of looking at God. It's really not a long time. Second Chronicles 28.19 says, For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, for he had brought about a lack of restraint in Judah and was very unfaithful to the Lord. A lack of restraint. Hezekiah comes on the scene after Ahaz has passed away, and he makes sweeping reforms. He reopens the temple. So first of all, think about that. The temple had been closed. I mean, the temple is, it was the, the central life of, of the Jewish people. And on top of that, from the passage we just read, they hadn't celebrated the Passover in some time, another key part of the Jewish identity. So Hezekiah comes in. He opens the temple again. He reestablishes the Levites and the priests. He cleanses the temple and the priests. And they celebrate the Passover again. So there's something to be learned there, right? That, you know, often we, um, we can use our upbringing or our parents or lack of parents as the reason for the way we are. For saying, well, you know, or we use that excuse for other people. Well, what do you expect? Look at, look at how they were raised. Look at the fact they didn't have a father or they didn't have a mother in their life. Okay, but Hezekiah is an example here of he had a wicked father who obviously didn't raise him in the ways of the Lord, and yet here he is following the ways of the Lord and being a leader in establishing the Lord uh, among his people again. You know, that's, so that's a lesson for us all, that we do not have to be defined by our upbringing or our circumstances. Our identity is defined through Jesus and who Jesus, who we are in Jesus. Okay? That is the only thing that should define your identity. So what are some of the fruits of Hezekiah's reign? Well, first of all, he reigned for 29 years. That's a pretty long time. 
um, he got an extension of life. Hezekiah's story is also detailed in, in um, Isaiah. Okay, Isaiah was one of the main prophets alive when Hezekiah was around. So um, if you want to check that out, that's Isaiah chapter 38, uh, where it talks about Hezekiah getting an additional 15 years of life after he thought his time was up. Um, Judah is rescued from the Assyrian army that's trying to um, uh, take over Judah. Remember I mentioned uh, King Sennacherib a moment ago, whose palace they, uh, looks like they may have found? Well, he goes after Judah. And Hezekiah, uh, the people, they call out to the Lord, and the Lord delivers them. There's peace during Hezekiah's reign. And there was revival during Hezekiah's reign because Judah turned from her wicked ways. So I want us again to return to that verse 9 of chapter 30 that we just read in Second Chronicles. Listen to it again. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive and will return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. So that was then. Let's skip ahead some 2,000 plus years to March 5th, 2017. Has much changed? When you look back at what was going on there and people turning away from the Lord, falling into idolatry, falling into their wicked ways, in 2017, has much changed? In Old Testament times, people were constantly turning away from God, being seduced by the idols of their day. When we think of idols, we tend to think of some little... Uh, metallic or wooden little statue, right? Or some um, imaginary God that people are worshiping to. But, you know, we know that idols can take on many, many forms. And often they're very deceptive. They're things that we don't realize are idols in our lives. Is this nation any different? Or the nations of the world, are they any different? In the time of Israel and Judah, they had a succession of kings. Doesn't, doesn't this country have its own succession of kings? They're just called by a different name, right? They're called presidents. Where I'm from, we actually still have kings and queens. <laughs> Are we going to be able to look back and see who were the good and who were the bad kings of this country? How will President Obama or President Trump or any of the presidents through the history of this country, how are they going to be judged with hindsight and through the eyes of did they do right in the eyes of the Lord? Not did they do right in the eyes of what the nation thought was best, but did they do right in the eyes of the Lord? So what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to draw some parallels between what was going on in the Old Testament times of the kings and the sort of the idolatry and the sins that were going on there, the wicked ways, and what's going on today in our present day uh, time, because there's really a lot of parallels. We've talked a little bit about our leaders, our present day leaders, but what about, what about the people? What about us within the countries? Do we feel like, do we feel society is getting better? Are we, uh, are we progressing? Are we growing in holiness and reverence to the Lord? You know, if we, 
If we describe ourselves as a progressive, what are we progressing towards? If we describe ourselves as a conservative, what are you trying to conserve? I think about the term progressive because I think there's a lot of good things about progressive and there's a lot of not so good things about progressive. And I think it all depends on your understanding of the term. A lot of people describe themselves as progressives. Um, If it's coming from a secular point of view, then it's really what it is, is it's a baby of the Enlightenment. Okay, the Enlightenment was this period in Europe of um, humanity kind of coming alive, getting new ideas. Um, Things were blossoming in the sciences, in the world of philosophy. And the the zenith of the Enlightenment was probably coming up to World War I, the end of uh, the 1800s. And humankind was sort of basking in its ingenuity, like uh, there's all these new discoveries going on. Uh, We're starting to learn more about ourselves. Uh, medicine, uh, the um, theory of uh, evolution, all these scientific discoveries are coming out. And we're sort of giving ourselves a pat on the back, saying, aren't we awesome? We are the masters of our, our own fate, our own destiny. We, we, are, we are progressing towards a more humane and enlightened society. And then World War I came along and pulled the rug from underneath that assumption. Because as smart and as educated uh, as we were, World War I showed how brutal we could really be and where our, our kind of our nature, human nature was. Isn't it really a form of idolatry to believe that we can be our own saviors? That if we just keep on this curve, that we are going to get better. Technology will save us. Medicine will save us. Science will save us. You name it, will save us. When actually the only thing that will save us is Jesus. So when I think of the term progressive, what I actually think in the term, think of it in kingdom terms is we want to be progressing towards more holiness, to more righteousness, to more right relationship with the Lord, to more sanctification. This idea of um, the human race being its own masses, this is, is part of a a bigger thing called secularism. And you've probably, most of you are familiar with that term, secularism. It's, secularism is on the, on the rise. We have the rise of what are called the nuns, and that's nothing to do with the Catholic Church. That's uh, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, uh, people who describe themselves as not affiliated with any religion. Um, Europe has been described as a post-Christian nation. Because there's this sense in Europe, and I, I certainly feel this when I go back to my home, home country of the UK, there's a sense that, you know, we've done that. We've been there. We're more enlightened. Let's move on. We're past that. And sometimes it can be easy, especially living in our Western culture, uh, to get a little bit dis, disheartened. When you see all these, oh, well, secularism's on the rise and all this. But we have to forget that um, Christianity... And belief in Jesus is actually blossoming around the world. If you take yourself out of Western culture and try places like Africa and China and and Asia, and there there is so much going on in the world that we should be encouraged about. Um, The thing about God is God works where people are hungry. Okay? If you feel like you don't 
need to be fed, then God can work other, other places. And he works where people are hungry for him. And there's, there's a heartbreaking passage in Hosea uh, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 15. It says, I will go away. This is the Lord speaking. This is the Lord speaking. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. When I first read that, I was, I was like really pierced to the soul about that because the Lord's saying, I will go away and return to my place. In other words, he's saying, if, if you are not interested in seeking me, I am not going to impose myself on you. I'm not going to force you to seek me. I will return until there's an acknowledgement of our guilt and our affliction and that we earnestly want to seek the Lord. So are we hungry for the Lord this morning? Are we hungry for more of Jesus? So secularism, like I say, is on the rise. And one of the things that is fueling secularism is um, partially something called postmodernism. Postmodernism. Now, there's a lot of good things about postmodernism. It's, it's, an, it's somewhat of an antidote to modernism, right? And one of the good things about postmodernism is that it's actually it's allowing us to believe in the supernatural again and to question all the assumptions that we've held for years and years. And that's a good thing, okay? But there are also some challenges with postmodernism, especially um, if we're trying to come from a biblical uh, viewpoint, okay? So one of the... One of the Hard things about postmodernism is it, that it resists the concept of absolute truth, okay, uh, and embraces relativism, okay. So relativism is this sense that, um, hey, you know, you want to believe one thing, that's fine. I want to believe another thing, that's fine. You can believe that. You can believe that. And as long as nobody's feelings are hurt, okay, everything's hunky dory. Um, you know, and of course we're, we're seeing the natural outworking of relativism. I feel like things are coming to a point because when you start hearing things like fake news, alternative facts, okay? Well, of course, why, why wouldn't that emerge if we've started to deny that absolute truth exists? If we say there's no such thing as absolute truth, then of course all these things can now become sources of their own truth. But that's not what we believe, is it? We believe there's only one source of truth. It's Jesus. And that's why I find this is a huge anchor in my life because um, it's so easy, right, to get confused with everything that's going on in the world right now. And do you ever find yourself just trying to find like a reliable source of news? <laughs> right? And all of a sudden you're realizing, wow, okay, the, uh, this agency is definitely leaning this way. This agency is definitely leaning this way. Okay, they clearly have an agenda. But, and and you just you end up frustrated because it feels like there's nowhere to turn anymore for a reliable source of truth. Okay? But we're forgetting something. It's right here. This is a reliable source of truth. This is the truth. And so I encourage you, if you're getting frustrated like I do, I get so frustrated sometimes on some days. I don't know whether, whether up, down is up or left is right. And I have to remind myself, go back to the source of truth. Ground yourself in Scripture. And all of a sudden, everything else comes into focus. You're able to see things through a clearer lens. So we get this uh, 
denial of this declaration that there is no such thing as absolute truth, okay? which is rather ironic because that's actually a declaration of absolute truth. But <laughs> I, uh, I digress. The other thing that postmodernism has is a suspicion of meta-narratives. What's a meta-narrative? A big grand story. Okay, you're looking at one right here. Okay, from Genesis to Revelation, right here, this is God's story of redemption. But what postmodernism does is it, it, um, it likes to deconstruct meta-narratives in a bid to expose what they see as power plays going on within these narratives. So when you hear somebody say, um, well, all religion is, is it's something to gain control over people. And, you know, uh, it's just a means of controlling the people. It's the opiate of the masses and all this kind of stuff. Really what they are is they're, they're kind of a victim of postmodernism. Um, and, of course, not believing in a grand story, a grand metaphor, again, is antithetical to God's plan of redemption. Okay, why did Jesus have to come? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Because of what happened back in Genesis. Jesus is coming again in the end of Revelation when he will uh, consummate all things. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Why does there need to be a new heavens and a new earth? You know, as Kirk Franklin, the gospel artist, said, you've got to know the whole book, not just a verse. So what are some modern-day... Idols, what are some things that we might need to repent of today? This is usually where people start getting a little bit uncomfortable. Because I'm asking you to look at yourself. I'm asking you to look inwards. I'm asking you to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal things in your life that might make you a bit uncomfortable. There's a lot of stuff going on in our society, isn't there, today? Our whole... Uh, concept of sex is getting more and more distorted day by day. Uh, sexual immorality is is pretty pretty standard now in our in our nation and a, around a lot of the world. Um, just take for example the uh, the porn industry. It's gigantic, multi billion dollar industry, and statistically speaking, there are many many people in this room right now who are struggling with pornography. That's just, that's just a stat. And I, I, I want to encourage you uh, because it's something that many, many people struggle with. It's something that I have struggled with in the past. And it's only through the grace of the Lord that I'm washed by his blood. It's, that's the only way that you can be free of these things is by turning to Jesus. Um, let me tell you something, a, a little bit about my history. Um, I have not led a squeaky, clean Christian life. Far from it. I was raised as a Roman Catholic in the UK. And I think in my heart, I always loved the Lord. But a lot of my life has not been manifested uh, in ways that would suggest I love the Lord. Okay, I was, before I came to the US, I was a touring musician. And I toured uh, over a lot of Europe, uh, the UK, Ireland, um, and was doing all the usual things that touring musicians do was not living a godly life, sexually immoral, um, drinking, um, just not living a, a life that honors the Lord. 
struggling with all these kinds of things. And I say all this as an encouragement to you um, that for me, it's been a gradual process of getting free of all these things. You know, and that's, that's what sanctification is, right? Sanctification is trying to get walking and growing in holiness every day. It's a journey. Sometimes the Lord does deliver you instantly from things, okay? And that's, I get very jealous of people who have those stories. <laughs> like, man, that must be so nice. You know, you've got some kind of addiction and then, you know, day tomorrow, they're like, it's, it's gone. That hasn't been the case with me. It's been a journey. Um, and one of the key aspects to being delivered from it is repentance. You've, you've got to open up and share what's going on with your life with somebody. If you, if you close it in, if you close whatever it is, and right now what I'm talking about is hidden sin. I picked on sexual immorality because that was one I, I could relate to pretty good. But you know what? There's, it could be any number of things that is going on in this room right now. There could be any number of us who are walking in some kind of hidden sin. All right? And hidden sin, I'll tell you, it's the worst kind of sin because it eats you alive. It devours you. It will have you walking in a constant place of shame and condemnation because that's exactly where it wants you. Okay? When it does that, it sucks all the power out of you. All the power out of you because you feel like a hypocrite. I know because I've been there. You feel like a walking hypocrite. Yeah, I'm a Christian, really. You get all these little voices in your head telling you, really, you think you're a Christian? Really? Let me tell you something. You hear voices like that. You hear voices that um, are condemning. That is not the voice of the Lord. That is the voice of the accuser. That is what Satan means, the accuser. And that is his job, to accuse you night and day before the Lord. Look at this, look at this person. Really? They're one of yours, Lord? Do not, do not believe those lies. I'll never forget, um, years ago, uh, Jeff Bianchi, right? We all know and love Jeff, right? Well, he was discipling me. And uh, we would be meeting on a regular basis. And I'll never forget the day he just one day came out and asked me, how is, how is your purity? And really what he was getting at, he was asking me, are you, are you looking at, at porn? Are you this and that? And the, the question blindsided me, you know, didn't exactly make me feel very comfortable, <laughs> you know. But at the same time, I felt like I couldn't lie to him. I had to be honest with him. So I, I, I was honest with him. And can I tell you, the moment I opened up, it was like this cloud came off. It was like this weight that had been bearing down upon me was lifted. And Jeff didn't condemn me. He didn't shame me. He didn't tell me to, to leave. He was full of love and compassion and sympathy. And that's just Jeff, a human being, right? Imagine how much more so God, our Father, is when you come before him and confess whatever you've done. By the way, he knows anyway, right? There's no pulling the wool over the Lord's eyes, you know? <laughs> I bet you didn't see that, huh? But he wants you to come before him with humility because there's power when you do that. So that was pretty uncomfortable. Then, but then guess what? It got more uncomfortable. Yeah, Jeff's good at that, isn't he? Um, he let that marinate for a little bit. And then he said, okay, you need to tell your wife. 
Oh, no, please. I can deal with it. No, I can deal with this on my own. I'll, I'll sort it out. She never has to know. She, you know, it, it'll really hurt her. You need to tell your wife. So that was an awkward conversation. <laughs> but you know what? I did tell my wife. And again, she didn't reject me and hate me. She loved me all the more. Because here what, what, what she saw was a flawed man trying to follow the ways of the Lord. And she knew uh, that what I did was a sign of repentance. Okay, repentance. What does that word mean? Repentance means, well, the Greek word that she uses is metanoeo. And that means literally a change of mind, okay? But also, it's a change of direction, okay? If you're trying to get to New York and you're following a road to New York, you're not going to get to Rhode Island. If you want to get to Rhode Island, you've got to change directions. Okay, so we have to ask ourselves, we're on a journey here. Is your journey towards God or is it away from God? And often what we have to do with repentance is we have to change directions because the direction we're walking in is not taking us towards God. It's taking us away from God. And so there's... When you turn, it, you're basically you're doing a 180. If you're going this way, you've got to go this way, right? Is that a 180? Yeah, right? Okay. It's never very good at math. Um, there's two parts to the turn, though. There's a turning away from sin and a turning towards God. There's two parts to the turn, turning away from sin and a turning towards God. So what, is that, what I want us to do this morning as, as we think about our wicked ways, all right, and it sounds like a strong term, but really what it is, it's thinking about anything that might be offensive to the Lord. Anything that you know is hurting your relationship with the Lord. And there are plenty of things that we all do that I'm sure hurt our relationship with the Lord. But I want, to, I want to encourage us this morning that there's a way to turn around, there's a way to come back, and it's through repentance. It's through repentance. It's, it's by getting on your knees and saying, Lord, uh, I need to confess this to you. If you want to walk in power, who wants to walk in the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit? Right? Okay, three of you. That's good. <laughs> Seriously, if you want to walk in power and authority under the Lord, you, it will not happen without repentance, without cleaning shop, without getting as much sin out of your life as you can. Okay? And it's a constant cleaning. It's like cleaning your house. You know your house gets dirty again? At least mine does. Um, You've got to clean it up again. It's a constant business. It's part of the Christian life is repentance. Okay? So I want to, I want to invite our team back up, the worship team. Um, I think we've got about 10 minutes left. You can do a whole lot of repenting in 10 minutes. Trust me. <laughs> um, and so what I want us to do is, uh, this is where it gets awkward, right? Because you know what I'm going to say next. Hey, why don't you come up front and, uh, you know, <laughs> show the world how sinful you are. But I'm giving you an option because I'm soft. <laughs> of course, you can sit in your chair and pray and Ask the Lord, uh, okay, 
Where, where are areas I need to repent? And it may actually be one of those. You may right now be thinking, oh, no, I know exactly where I need to repent. <laughs> okay. Um, and it can be between you and the Lord. Or it can be between uh, a trusted friend. Or it could be between a stranger. Perhaps, you know, sometimes that's easier, right? Because you don't, it doesn't feel as awkward sometimes. But I do also want to give you that option of coming up front, okay? And realizing that, that this, is, this is not an act of shame or condemnation. This is actually an act of freedom, okay? This, this is how you get free. And it's an act of humility. So I just want to encourage you, if you need prayer, come up. Come up front or turn to somebody and ask them, I need prayer. Tell somebody what's going on in your life. I promise you it will not be as scary and as intimidating as you feel, as you think it might be. So I want to uh, invite um, Pastor Mark up, who's going to share a few few words with you as well and just uh, lead us in this time.